This is an ABC podcast. Hi, I'm Kylie Morris, and I'll be sitting in for regular Between the Lines presenter Tom Switzer for the next few weeks while he's on an extended break. Thanks for joining us today on this week's program. Tegan Westendorf discusses the perfect storm of internal problems and external demands that make life in Afghanistan now so difficult. From Italy, Robert Tobin tells us why Eurovision is so much more than just a glitzy song fest and how the geopolitical realities of Europe are played out both on and off stage. But we begin with this week's election result in the Philippines and the return of the Marcos family line to power. Now, there are extraordinary political comebacks and there are downright resurrections. The latter is what happened in this week's presidential elections in the Philippines when the son of Ferdinand and Imelda Marcos, he's even got the same name, Ferdinand Jr. Marcos, took an unassailable lead in the polls, more than double the vote tally of his rival. You may remember Ferdinand Sr. and his 21 years as president until he and his wife Imelda fled for their lives to Hawaii, fleecing their nation to the tune of what's thought to be around $10 billion. Their son has this week been elected to serve his first six-year term. He'll take office at the end of next month. I'm joined now by someone who has lived this story, Sheila Coronel, journalism professor at Columbia University and one of the founders of the Philippine Centre for Investigative Journalism. I should mention that very early in her career, she covered the final years of the original Marcos presidency or dictatorship, depending on your view. Sheila, uh, one Filipino columnist has written that this is like Kylo Ren has emerged and the empire is back in power, to use a Star Wars analogy. A simple question, I'm not sure there's a simple answer. How did this happen? Well, there is no simple answer. The the Marcos family was basically playing a long game. Ever since they were ousted from power in 1986, they had exerted every effort to reclaim the presidency that they believed had been stolen from them. And that included running first for local office, making alliances with other political families, normalizing the Marcoses as just one of the many political families that monopolize public office in the Philippines, and also investing really heavily in a disinformation machinery that was largely focused on erasing and rewriting history. So, so encouraging the Philippine populace into a kind of collective amnesia. Well, they what the Marcoses essentially did was to create an alternative um, information ecosystem, mm-hmm. an echo chamber where Marcos revisionism reigned, and mostly online on Facebook and YouTube, directed at especially younger the younger generation that had no memory of martial law or of the plunder and human rights abuses of the Marcos regime. They basically took advantage of, you know, information voids and played upon 
an increasing dissatisfaction with a very elite democracy in the Philippines. They portrayed themselves as sort of victims of the democratic restoration. And many Filipinos who felt that democracy did very little for them sympathized with that. They, uh, they provided really a narrative that played to the frustration and resentments of many of our countrymen who are suffering from increasing poverty and inequality in a democratic system that was dysfunctional and gridlocked and corrupt and incompetent. I'm struck, Sheila, by um, Ferdinand Jr.'s slogan, election slogan, which was, together we shall rise again. Who's the we? Are the we the Marcoses or the we, are the we the kind of the proud Philippine people? I think he meant the proud Philippine people. You know, this is, this is really the narrative of restoration and resurrection, meaning we, the Marcos era, the people who run, you know, the country during his father's rule are going to be in power again and that the people would be the better for it. The Marcoses had always portrayed themselves as champions of the people and um, harbingers of a new era, of a new society. He is basically repeating a narrative that his father had, you know, almost since um, his first election, Ferdinand Marcos Sr.'s first election in 1965, his promise was that this country would be great again. So Ferdinand Jr. benefits from many decades of Marcos propaganda, not just, you know, not just the disinformation of recent years, but many decades of Marcos propaganda and sort of some sort of misty recollection by many Filipinos of the Marcos era. When you say misty, do you mean nostalgic? I would say it's misty because they don't remember the bad things that happened because there was you know, they had not been reminded of it recently. What the Marcos machine did was to remind people, you know, my father, this is what Marcos Jr. says, mm. my father built roads, bridges, etc. And 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 that memory of the Marcos regime is much more distant than the more recent memory of the problems with democracy. Can we explore a little further a couple of issues you raised? Firstly, you talk about a kind of an active rebranding of the Marcoses, particularly targeting younger people, maybe on social media or with the kind of messaging that might appeal to younger voters. Is that right? Very much so. I mean, the, uh, the Marcoses dominate TikTok and they're very, very active in YouTube and Facebook. So they and they and they are propagating very simplistic narratives. They're making the Marcoses look um, harmless, almost even fun. They're doing remixes, uh, Zumba and jazz versions of um, Ferdinand Senior's New Society anthem. You know this 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 kind of song that now people are dancing to in TikTok. So they're really using. Um, this appeals to the younger population. This is not 1970s Marcos propaganda. This is very much 21st century algorithmic manipulation of public sentiment. I understand that uh, many young voters would not recall, you know, it was 1986, wasn't it, when, when Ferdinand and Imelda were eventually kind of bundled out of the country. I, mm. I, I understand that they might not recall that, but surely all the investigations after... Um, the exile of the Marcoses 
what happened, all those questions over what has happened to the estimated, you know, $10 billion that went missing, didn't they have a shared uh, understanding of the kind of regime the Marcoses had run through through that? The Marcoses are saying they had never really been convicted in court, and that's not quite true because Melda Marcos has. But the problem is that very weak institutions had failed in the Philippines had failed to hold the Marcoses accountable for the plunder and the human rights abuses. The government did pay hundreds of millions of, of dollars to victims of human rights abuses. That is in itself an acknowledgement that the abuse had occurred using money that the government had recovered from Marcos's Swiss bank accounts. But the Marcoses are debating all that. They say they had been unfairly treated. I mean, they actually make themselves look like the victim. And and this victim narrative resonates among people who feel they too have been victimized. It's very, it's very strange, I know, but the Marcoses have managed to do it, portraying themselves as victims of democracy, much like the Filipino people. It reminds me a little of, of Thaksin Shinawat in Thailand, I've got to say, that at the time of his, you know, there, there was a great deal of corruption and uh and he was unpopular among the elites, but you would go to the poorest villages in northern Thailand and Thaksin was a hero, partly because of his own wealth. You know, if he had made himself so wealthy, surely he would make those villages wealthy as well. Is there some perception like that? There's some There's some sort of um, millenarian, if you can call it that, version of the Marcos narrative because um, although the Marxists themselves deny deny this, but there is a belief that's proliferating on social media that the Marxists, when they get into power, will return the wealth that they had either stolen or that their father had gotten from either the Yamashita, you know, the treasure left by the Japanese general um, Yamashita after the Second World War, or by this ancient noble Filipino family who had, you know, lots of gold and that Marcos had lawyered for them and that Mar- and that the Marcos family would give it away. There is certainly kind of a cargo cult thing about some of some of this Marcos. They don't make the promises themselves, but it's their social media echo chamber, echo chamber that is propagating these myths. I mean, the Marcoses have always thrived in myths. Marcos Sr. propagated the myth that he had a magic amulet that say that gave him eternal life or that saved him from bullets and whatever. So they're playing on a lot of these folk beliefs and a lot of wishful thinking and um, and a lot of fantasy. In terms of those that money that went missing, of course, there were decades of investigations into that of Cory Aquino. One of her first acts was to set up that presidential commission on good governance, trying to recover. Um, that wealth, but uh, only a fraction of what's stolen was ever recovered. I wonder, do you feel that there will still be a genuine exploration of what happened to that money now? Can that go on with another Marcos in, in charge? I don't think so. I think one of the first things that Ferdinand Jr. is going to do is abolish the government commission that's investigating the Marcos wealth. He, first of all, denies that his family um, stole any money. He claims everything they have is rightfully theirs. 
Marcus' family lives in a history of denial and half-truths and illusions and evasions and outright lies. And so they would try to erase anything or eliminate anything that would hold their family accountable for the sins of the past. Sheila, on one hand, you have this, as you say, this myth, this renewed myth-making by the Marcoses and and obviously very powerful um, campaigning using social media and directly targeting younger voters. But on the other side, isn't this also to some extent a failure of that people power revolution to, I suppose, achieve um, improvements for regular Filipino people um, since 1986? If that revolution had been more successful, perhaps it wouldn't have been possible for this to happen. I completely agree. People power morphed into an elitist democracy where political power is dominated by a few families. Um, Around 80% of local government posts are held by families that had been in power for several generations. In the Senate, Senate too is dominated by families. The Congress is dominated by families. And so we have a very unequal power structure and a very unequal wealth structure. And so there is reason for people to be frustrated with democracy because what has democracy given them except the freedom to speak out maybe, and but nothing in terms of real gains. Certainly the failure of elite democracy has powered the Marcos resurrection. Now, it's not only the Marcoses who are restored to power by this election. The new president's running mate also has a familiar name. She is Sarah Duterte. Does she share her father's politics? She certainly does. I mean, she took over her father's position as mayor of Davao. And during her mayoralty, um, her, she continued with her father's policy of, you know, very strong iron hand against criminals. There were still a large number of petty criminals being killed in Davao during her during her mayoral term. She's taken a hard line. She wants to restore the ROTC. She's very much, in many ways, she is her father's daughter in terms of believing in you know, what the country needs is, quote unquote, discipline, and that the problems of the country can be traced to a lack of discipline among the people. I'm guessing a a bit like uh, Marcos Ferdinand Marcos Jr. himself, her elevation is likely to to stall any further meaningful investigation into her father's business, particularly his war on drugs. That is true. It's unlikely that the Marcos Duterte government would hold either the Marcos family or the Duterte family accountable for their past sins. On the contrary, they would um, institute a regime of impunity for both corruption and human rights abuses. So it's a chance to wipe the slate, slate clean effectively? Yes, wipe the slate clean and continue with business as usual. How long can this new pair of Marcos and Duterte stay in power? Well, they have a six-year term. And I think what they will do is Tara Duterte will probably be running for president after um, Marcos. And she has a good chance of, of winning. Could they swap places? No, I don't think so. I don't think they would do that. There are enough other Marcoses 
who can take over. <laughs> Plentiful supply. Yes, yeah. What are the implications of this new leadership in terms of regional power, Sheila? I mean, Ferdinand Jr. has said he's interested in friendship with the Chinese. He has longstanding personal ties with China. And of course, he needs investment. He needs money to meet his promises on infrastructure. Is this good news for Beijing? Well, certainly the Marcos is like the Duterte, like Duterte um, was closer to Beijing than they were to the West. I mean, they both see the West as like finger wagging and moralizing and and uh, on they see them as hypocritical on human rights and democracy. And and they they are very more towards the China-Russia axis. And you'll, you'll certainly see increasing closeness in the coming years. Himself can even go to the United States because he's facing contempt charges. Of course, he has a, con- a contempt yeah. of court charge up against him, doesn't yes. he? And a yes. fine, a fine three hundred and fifty something million dollar fine that he faces in the US. I, I'm not sure what the exact amount is. He's certainly facing fines here because of unpaid real estate taxes from mm. thirty years ago. Yeah, I mean, uh, it might make a visit to Washington slightly awkward. It it would it would certainly yeah. So I don't see the Marcuses, you know, being close to the U.S. In fact, they would be very wary of the U.S. and the West in general. Will Australia be put into that camp with the U.S.? Do you think as as kind of Western troublemakers? I don't know. It depends on how what how the Australian government um, reacts to a Marcus presidency. Um, will it be critical? Will it see it as, you know, the next legitimate government and therefore they should just shut up and go on with business as usual? It depends, really. Uh, media freedom, of course, it's a very dangerous place to be a journalist, the Philippines. Do we know under Ferdinand Jr. what the attitude will be to a free press? Well, what we know is how he how he's conducting himself now as a presidential candidate. He has refused to give interviews to independent journalists. He's refused to appear in debates. He um, he's created his own community of vloggers, um, media, social media influencers and micro-influencers who propagate and disseminate his campaign line. He's given special access to this community of quote-unquote citizen journalists. So I think they would have a more privileged position. He's basically said mainstream media is irrelevant. When it comes to investigating, I suppose, these promises, whether they're carried out, whether the people who voted for him uh, will actually get what they're expecting, I'm guessing there won't be a very close uh, measure taken of that then. Well, I think Filipino journalists will try very hard, but um, whether they can penetrate the, the Marcos echo chambers is is um, is a question, because the Marcoses really have a alternate parallel universe of media that is impenetrable. It's like a fortress. And whether mainstream media can penetrate that or contrary voices can penetrate that remains to be seen. Sheila, you covered the end of the original Marcoses and the tumult that surrounded that. So personally, I suppose as a journalist and as a Philippine citizen, how does it feel for you to see another Marcos ascend to the presidential palace? Personally, it breaks my heart because 
you know, I saw the Marcus, I saw how Filipinos ousted a tyrant. It was a very historic and moving moment for me as a journalist and as a citizen. And seeing them come back resurrected with Marcus Jr., really like his father incarnate, with the same shirt, the same hand gestures, the same part in the hair, the same kind of speech and rhetoric, it brings back, it's like post-traumatic stress. It brings back memories of the Marcus era. Sheila, we'll have to speak again. But for now, thank you so much for joining us on Between the Lines. You're welcome. That was Sheila Coromel, journalism professor at Columbia University and one of the founders of the Philippine Centre for Investigative Journalism, joining us from Manila. ABC Radio National, this is Between the Lines. I'm Kylie Morris, sitting in for Tom Switzer. Up next, Western aid to Afghanistan is drying up and the Taliban crackdown on the opium trade. What does this all mean for the long-suffering Afghans? Tegan Westendorf joins me in just a moment. in Afghanistan has further deteriorated in the months since the last US military plane left Kabul in August of last year. Since you'll remember those chaotic scenes at the airport, uh, international aid has been cut back. Women are once again being persecuted and the country continues to suffer from a drought and many are going hungry. Health and other essential government services are very much struggling. Now, Dr. Tegan Westendorf, who's an analyst in the law enforcement program at the Australian Strategic Policy Institute, joins me now to discuss this perfect storm of internal problems and external demands that make life in Afghanistan so difficult. Tegan, welcome to the program. It's a pleasure. Now, is it accurate, do you think, Tegan? And we used to always talk about Afghanistan as a failing state back in the day when the Taliban were fully in control. But now it feels like it's a forgotten one as well. I do think that's a fair assessment. And I think that the competing demands from the international community in the wake of the US uh, pulling out of Afghanistan and the Taliban retaking control really highlight a critical point at which Afghanistan could become a more failed state, if that's even imaginable right now. And I think that the intersecting threats of transnational serious organised crime, the rise of new terrorist groups in the form of uh, uh, ISK, and also the nation-building challenges that were not resolved in the last 20 years of the international community being in Afghanistan, mean that this is this is a moment where there is is even a further degree of precarity that, if not addressed by the international community, could mean that this entire cycle 
is relived with instead of the Taliban being the non-state actor destabilizing a US-backed regime as we saw for the last 20 years, the shoe is simply on the other foot with the Taliban trying to consolidate power in a situation where the country is hemorrhaging international aid money that provides basic services to its people. There is acute already and increasing uh, food insecurity. And ISK is stepping into the role of this primary non-state actor that is really compromising security and stability in Afghanistan and also the near region, a role only recently vacated by the Taliban themselves, such that we could see the same problem that the Bush administration went in to solve back in 2001, which is to remove the enabling conditions of the kind of international terrorist threats that spill far beyond this failed state. Tegan, as you described, there are lots of uh, factors that make up, I guess, the well-being of the state or the stability of the state currently, um, you know, the, the presence of terror groups, what's happening to the international aid money, the failure of people to be able to access even basic services or indeed jobs. Um, but opium production is, of course, something that all that the international community is very focused on because this is the problem that Afghanistan contributes to the global economy uh, in a way that is very difficult to control, particularly when groups like the Taliban are in charge. What's happening on that front? So the recent opium ban is actually one in, is the most recent of several attempts to curb Afghan opium coming out into the world. Now, for context, Afghan opium supplies 80% of the world's uh, heroin supply. Now, the criminal profits generated from this are quite extraordinary. In 2021, enough opium to make 320 tonnes of pure heroin was trafficked out of Afghanistan. And on the Australian market today, that would be worth 145 billion Australian dollars sold at the street level. And it's 350 times the amount of opium, that of heroin rather, that is consumed in Australia today. Now, of course, Australian heroin doesn't come from Afghanistan. It comes from Southeast Asia. But this is some insight into the scale of this problem. Now, the reason that presents such a huge challenge to stabilising Afghanistan is that the instability and low levels of governance that are uh, present in this kind of um, failed state scenario provide opportunities for organised crime to operate, first of all, unencumbered by law enforcement, and that corrupt regimes such as the Taliban themselves historically and other non-state actors like the Taliban under the US-backed government and ISK today can take a really fat cut of those criminal profits by allowing businesses to proceed. So this is huge funding potential for crime and terrorism in the region, for which the US's 2001 military operation, as I said previously, actually went in to remove these kind of enabling conditions. Now, this is further complicated by the fact that when you shrink the illicit economy, according to UNODC data, you actually increase the size of the illicit, not only relatively, but because the absence of legal alternatives stimulates further illegal activities. And we're seeing that today with the increase of production of both methamphetamines and synthetic opioids in the region. So, Tegan, am I right in thinking, certainly when I've worked in Afghanistan before and and done stories about opium production, one of the 
trickiest issues for policymakers to deal with was the efficiency of the opium um, gangs, if you like, the fact that they would deliver the Mm -hmm. seeds, bags of seeds to the farmers. Uh, They would pay them up front for what they would get for the production and then they'd be back after harvest to pick up um, the production and, and take it to market effectively. So compared to that, growing wheat or growing some other crop didn't really compare, doesn't really compare for an average farming family. Absolutely. And this is a huge problem because it means that particularly given the extraordinary drought that Afghanistan is currently facing, there aren't viable alternatives for people who are growing opium because that's where the majority of their income is coming from. Now, it's the fact that those opium traders come back to collect um income after the harvest also means that if a ban is enforced, then those opium farmers have a debt that they are not able to pay. And we have increasing reports of people being indebted to the extent that they are selling their daughters. Um, I haven't been able to verify these reports, but there are some of people selling internal organs on the black market. So, we're talking about a country where 70% of people live rurally, 80% of people's livelihoods are primarily based on agriculture, and there's a huge amount of income that is specifically coming in from growing opium. So a law enforcement response, even if it was to be effective, which I really don't think it's possible to do, and there's no empirical evidence over the last four bans to suggest that that's comprehensively enforceable, what it is going to do is have the have the greatest effect on rural communities of rendering them destitute, inexorably indebted to those opium traders and starving. On ABC Radio National, this is Between the Lines. I'm Kylie Morris and my guest is Dr Tegan Westendorf, an analyst in the Law Enforcement Program at the Australian Strategic Policy Institute. Tegan, what is the Australian government doing currently? Can you update us on that? How is it responding to the situation Afghanistan now finds itself in? So the Australian government recently donated $40 million to assist with alleviating the food insecurity and economic crisis unfolding in Afghanistan as a result of the withholding of a huge amount of international aid. Now, I think this is really important and great that Australia has been able to signal strongly that it does not agree with the terrible treatment of women and children and people perceived as traitors for working with the previous US-backed administrations, and that it is also able to recognise that this is a humanitarian crisis that is only getting worse and putting money on the table to actually make an impact in, uh, in, in responding to that need. I mean, sadly, we have learned very swiftly that I think in the early days of the new Taliban government, there were all kinds of promises made, promises made that this is, you know, Taliban 2.0. This is, you know, that they would um, show a different kind of respect for women than they had in the past, that there would be still be opportunities for women uh, and that they would have a different approach to human rights. However, what we've learned very swiftly is and now, again, we've seen a ban on women um, appearing alone outside of their homes. They have to um, be completely covered if they do venture out. The schools aren't open broadly. Uh, so we now know that the kind of social impacts of the Taliban, you know, those terrible um, attacks on Hazara, which the Taliban have been unable 
or unwilling to prevent. Given what we know now about the Taliban, shouldn't that create a sense of greater urgency than we're currently seeing uh, in the governments of the international community? I think it does. Now, there's been, like you say, talk that this is a different kind of Taliban, but the only significant difference I can see is that this is an administration that has learned to be savvy to its comms strategy, basically, and using, for example, social media to try and project a version of the Taliban that it thinks is more likely to achieve international recognition. The important factor that I would say has changed, which is really critical for the international community to take note of and respond to, is that this Taliban, its calculus must have clearly shifted now that it is in power in a scenario where there are other non-state groups adopting exactly the same kind of strategies to destabilize its government and its uh, and and the country that it's trying to pull up out of this failed situation, and that what's transpiring is a security scenario that essentially gave rise to the nine eleven attacks in America. Now, instead of being the non-government terrorist organisation, the Taliban is trying to consolidate power and the international community is doing the right thing by putting pressure on it with regards to human rights. But I think a dangerous thing in terms of putting economic pressure on it, that means it can't stabilise this country. Now, I'm definitely not arguing that the international community should support a Taliban Afghanistan in its violations of human rights, but I think that it's barreling towards exactly the same problem where the lack of uh, governance and the rampant instability organised crime and terrorism will pull the international community back into Afghanistan for the same reason it was in 2001. Tegan, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. That's Dr. Tegan Westendorf, an analyst in the Law Enforcement Program at the Australian Strategic Policy Institute. And we'll post links on the Between the Lines homepage to two of her recent articles on Afghanistan and the opium trade. On ABC Radio National, this is Between the Lines. I'm Kylie Morris, sitting in for Tom Switzer. Up next, Eurovision. Robert Tobin explains how the geopolitical realities of Europe play out both on and off the stage. Now, Eurovision, it's the world's biggest annual music event and song contest. It's big, bold, brash and unashamedly popular. Uh, For the last five years, the finals have been watched by, count them, over 180 million people. Similar figures are expected this weekend for the event hosted this time around by Italy. So it's a very big deal, but it's not just about popular music and culture. As my next guest notes... Politics have never been that far away from the Eurovision Song Contest. Since its inception, the annual event has reflected the political culture and geopolitical realities of Europe. 
So much more than just a singing contest. Robert Tobin is the chair in language, literature and culture at Clark University in Massachusetts. He's studied and written extensively on and about Eurovision. Robert, so kind of you to join us today from Italy. How's it going there? It's going wonderfully. Beautiful weather. And uh, I've seen all the events. I've been to both the um, semifinals. So I'm ready to talk Eurovision. <laughs> you're, you're well and truly in, in the midst of it. What can you tell us firstly Indeed. about Eurovision's reaction to the Russian invasion of Ukraine? I understand it's, I think it's the first time in its history, 66 year history, that a country has effectively been uninvited. Yes. Um, so there's um, been a kind of growing tension between uh, what I'd call the Eurovision community and Russia for several years, uh, a lot of it around LGBTQ issues. So uh, as uh, Putin has uh, moved to the right, so to speak, on LGBTQ issues, um, and Eurovision has been a very LGBTQ uh, positive platform, a lot of um, uh, Eurovision fans have kind of developed an anti-Russian attitude. But interestingly, Russia has persisted in uh, trying to compete in Eurovision, whereas, say, other um, authoritarian countries like Turkey or Hungary have just decided they don't want to compete. And um, uh, so this has been bubbling along for, for some years, uh, but hasn't led to any kind of expulsion or anything. Uh, and it was the invasion of, of Ukraine that led to that. Uh, my understanding is, is that the initiative really came from several national broadcasting uh, companies. So it wasn't really the overarching European Broadcast Union, but rather um, certain Scandinavian countries uh, said they didn't want to participate if Russia was participating. Uh, so, um, and this uh, reflects what was going on in, in international sports organizations as well. Uh, so, yes, it is the first time that I know of that uh, a country has been disinvited. Um, I myself have somewhat mixed feelings about that. Um, Why is that? Well, um, you know, I feel like Eurovision is often a um, center of energy for liberal-minded progressive people in, in various countries. Uh, so, um, you know, when Turkey was involved, you know, it was, it was pro-European, pro-democracy people who were um, very uh, enthusiastic about Eurovision. Um, and um, I, I my own sense is that uh, that in Israel it's also a somewhat similar phenomenon, and um, so I think that you know this was a, a decision that they had to make about Russia, um, uh, and I I guess they decided that the that allowing the government of Russia to participate was a, a greater evil than losing the. Um, kind of access to liberal-minded Russian people who I think could have used Eurovision as a, as a potential point of resistance. Um, I, don't, I, I don't entirely second-guess the decision, but uh, it, do, it does, to me, it means it's probably leaving a few uh, liberal-minded Russians even more isolated than they were before. So, so, Robert, Russia is out, but Ukraine is very out. much in, <laughs> and... Perhaps it seems Indeed. its entry has a good chance of winning. Were you a betting man, it might be uh, worth putting some money on. Let's have a quick listen, though, if we can. Great. Stefania, <laughs> mamo, 
Stefania by the Kalush Orchestra, Ukraine's entry to Eurovision 2022. Robert, what can you tell us about the song? Do you like it? What do you like about it if you do? Yeah, I do like it um, quite a bit. Um, I think it's important to uh, track down, if, if people want to study this song a little more, uh, track down a version with the subtitles, unless you happen to know Ukrainian, uh, because uh, I think they're quite moving. So it's a, it's a song uh, written um, about an aging mother. And um, coincidentally, my own mother did just pass away. So this had a kind of personal effect for me also. Uh, and uh, so it's about an aging mother and um, it alternates between this kind of melodic uh, chorus uh, that, that that's quite beautiful uh, and is kind of easy to sing along with and then very rapid kind of hip hop. Uh, and it does something that Ukraine's been quite good at over the years, uh, just in terms of kind of its Eurovision strategy, which is uh, kind of marrying um, folkloric elements uh, that definitely sound like kind of Eastern European, Ukrainian music uh, with a global um, with kind of global musical trends. So in this case, it's hip hop. Last year, they did kind of a ethno, uh, ethno dance, ethno EDM kind of sound uh, with uh, Goa. Uh, and uh, they, they've, they, this, this is kind of their niche, and, and they've gotten quite good at it. Uh, so um, it is, as I say, about an aging mother and uh, has nonetheless come to sort of represent, uh, you know, perhaps the mother is the motherland. Um, uh, these are uh, all young men who are singing who actually are supposed to be in the military. They got special permission to leave for this competition. Uh, so uh, they're kind of like, you know, you know, soldiers in the field thinking about their mother back at home. Uh, so it, it has all of this kind of um, it's a P there are lots patriotic overtones. Lots of PR yeah. possibilities there, Robert. Yeah. I, I mean, if, exactly. you, if Ukraine do manage to pull off a victory – that would mean in the Eurovision tradition that they would have to host the next year's yeah. competition. Is that something that would already be kind of being considered by the Eurovision powers that be, how Ukraine might manage the cost of hosting next year? Yeah, probably it would be in the back of their minds. Um, now, this is actually, now, usually it's not the case that a country has just been invaded by a superpower, but um, uh, uh, but it is it is always a little bit of an issue because um, putting together a mega event in a year is is hard in any country. Um, so, uh, you, you know, and you don't usually know who's going to win. So, you know, suddenly Italy has to put together something and they have to find a venue and so forth. Uh, but that will be much harder with Ukraine, of course. Um, you know, my guess would be that if the hostilities have ceased, which, you know, hopefully they will have, um, uh, that uh, Ukraine will definitely want to host it to show that they're resilient. Uh, it might be in Lviv because it was in um, Kiev before and, uh, and Kiev has taken more of a hit than Lviv. It is possible. Um, Sometimes other countries step in. Uh, I don't remember the year specifically, but there was a year that Israel um, 
uh, one, uh, and then um, there were reasons that they couldn't host it. Um, I think maybe, yeah, I, I, I'm forgetting the details, but another country did step in to host it. So that is a potential, um, but I'm sure Ukraine will want to um, show the world that they can do this. Will we be able to imagine what the marks might be from some of the countries for that Ukraine entry dependent upon their view of what's happened to Ukraine at the hands of Putin? Like, will you see very yes. generous marking, for example, from NATO countries, members of the EU, Baltic states, for example? Yeah, yeah. So you, I'm sure you will. So uh, yeah, the Baltic states are an excellent example. Um, Poland, I think, uh, is another good example of countries that will very much be wanting to send a signal. Um, and, um, you know, it is quite remarkable, the unity that Europe has shown. So there's not too many countries that are in the competition that would be likely to um, kind of harbor some pro-Russian sentiments. Uh, I think I did see some survey or poll that said you know, certain countries, Greece and, and, and Cyprus, have a significant percent of the population that is kind of more neutral on this. So in those countries, you might see um, um, less of a political vote for Ukraine. I have a feeling there, you know, this uh, Eurovision is the vote is done 50% um, popular, 50% jury. Uh, and I, um, I think that this song will do well with the juries, um, kind of depending on their attitude towards hip hop. Uh, hip hop's not a really common um, uh, uh, genre for Eurovision. So there might be some juries that are kind of feel less comfortable judging that. Uh, but the the main melodic refrain, uh, I think they'll like. Um, and um, so, you know, we'll have to see how the jury, whether the juries put something of a break on the um, on the popular support for the country. On ABC Radio National, this is Between the Lines. I'm Kylie Morris and my guest is Robert Tobin, who's the Chair in Language, Literature and Culture at Clark University, Massachusetts. Robert, of course, Australia is a country of immigrants and home to many Europeans, but it's still a very long way from mm -hmm. Europe, although on you know, <laughs> nights like tonight, maybe not. But, but what do you make of Australia's inclusion in Eurovision? Well, I I uh, was probably um, as mystified as many people at first, many non-Australians, uh, but there's a, quite a bit of a, um, a Australian Eurovision academic community these days. So there's a couple of books on the subject that I have read where I've really learned quite a bit, and I might be repeating the stuff that all of that you know. But uh, the the basic thesis I recall was that. Uh, initially, uh, because of the large immigrant population um, uh, in Australia, um, uh, the, the Eurovision was shown kind of as a kind of a, almost a diasporic uh, kind of phenomenon to let, you know, people from the you know, hear the music of the old country, so to speak, you know, to, you know, what are they doing in Italy this year? Um, uh, and then gradually, um, like the competition actually elsewhere, it kind of shifted from that to being kind of this kind of hipster uh, thing with the LGBTQ overtones and, and, and that also found an audience in Australia. Uh, so um, Australia um, was invited uh, 
to join at the 50th, I believe, um, Eurovision Song Contest uh, uh, because it was a, a country with such a strong fan base and a country that had um, broadcast it for, fi for 50 years, uh, which is not true, say, in the United States uh, or Canada, I think. And um, um, uh, so it came and it stuck around. Um, and uh, I did just see the uh, Australian entry live uh, yesterday. It's very beautiful. Um, and the singing is quite lovely, too. Uh, so I, I think that will appeal to juries. I feel like, um, I feel like you're being generous, Robert. It's very yes, beautiful yes. and quite lovely. <laughs> Slightly. Yes, yes. I, that doesn't feel like yeah. a winning entry in, in your uh, description. I don't think it will win. Um, there, there have been other ones that were uh, uh, closer to winning. Um, and I think at the beginning when there was this sort of excitement about Australia um, uh, being uh, in the competition, there was a lot of enthusiasm. I did hear from someone, and I, I have not double-checked the facts, so someone else, uh, if, if any of our listeners are interested, they can, they can find this out, but that um, Australia actually, whereas with Ukraine, we were saying, huh, maybe the juries will pull the vote down, um, with Australia, apparently, sometimes has a time struggling with the popular vote because the um, uh, the European populace, you know, doesn't know what to make of this country. So, <laughs> well, we don't mind being the underdog, Robert. Maybe maybe it plays in our yes, favour in the end. Listen, exactly, exactly. You, of course, work and live normally in the US. What do Americans mm -hmm. make of Eurovision? They made a very good movie about it. Oh, Yes, exactly. So the movie is important, uh, but Americans in general didn't do make anything of this. So um, I got into this because I study European, you know, I do German studies and European studies. Uh, and so I discovered this phenomenon, but often had to, you know, go to great lengths to explain to my friends uh, what it was I was studying. Uh, and um, uh, then um, maybe uh, four or five years ago, it, it had never been broadcast in the States. So it was difficult to watch. Um, back in the olden days, you had to ask people to send you a VHS or something, you know, that they had taped. Uh, and like um, Eurovision. Then, That's serious Eurovision, Robert. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, that was kind of yeah, 90s uh, is when I first got into the subject matter. And then... Um, um, uh, you know, then with the internet, it became easier. But even in that case, sometimes you needed a VPN and kind of complicated technological things. Um, and uh, uh, so it is definitely a niche market. I find um, every year I have more students who know about it, who somehow got turned on to it. And because it, you know, is so present on the internet, you really can look up, you know, I think you can probably see almost every song that's ever been performed for Eurovision, you can find on the internet. Um, and so it, but it still is kind of a, um, uh, an insider um, phenomenon, but the Will Ferrell movie, uh, which was just the perfect confection for the COVID era, and just, it really took your mind off of everything else for an hour and a half. Uh, that that brought attention to the um, American public, and then Eurovision is trying to expand uh, on the. It's kind of a business strategy, I gather. Uh, so they they are going to they they have just completed the American Song Contest, which uh, um, you know 
is is the American version. So with 50 states and six, uh, um, five territories and and DC. Um, so we'll see whether that works. There are already some pretty good um, song contest televised song contest shows that have more of a track record and. I think 56, it's, it's a little hard to keep track of. So it's hard to, you know, say, oh, wait, yes, I like Arkansas better than Idaho, or was it the other way around? You know, that kind of thing. Robert, you talk about kind of being it being very niche to pay a great deal of interest as an academic yeah. to this contest. But you obviously find it very useful. Would you advise analysts, diplomats, policymakers who might be monitoring the European mood to perhaps pay closer attention to Eurovision? Is there much to learn? Oh, absolutely. I think uh, especially when you delve down into the voting records of the different countries, you kind of see hidden alliances or shall we say hidden affinities between countries. Um, and uh, yeah, I think you also get a, a general sense of the mood. You know, uh, my feeling is Maniskin last year, at a year of COVID, you know, people just wanted to get out and party. And so they loved this wonderful Italian rock band. This year, uh, in general, a lot of ballads. I think people are more reflective and um, you know, it hasn't turned out to be quite the party that, <laughs> that people hoped it would be. Uh, and, uh, and then, of course, with the, um, the cloud of the war in the East hanging over everyone, you know, it's a more serious tone, I feel. Robert, you have a wonderful time at Eurovision. And thanks so much for joining us. Okay, wonderful. Uh, and uh, yes, thank you for giving me a call. Yeah, bye-bye. That's Robert Tobin. He's Chair of Faculty and Chair in Foreign Languages and Cultures at Clark University in Worcester, Massachusetts. Uh, for full Eurovision coverage, you can head over to SBS or check out the ABC's live blog of the final this Sunday evening, 15th of May. And that's the show. Thanks for your company. I'm Kylie Morris sitting in today for Tom Switzer. I'll be back with more Between the Lines next week here on ABC Radio National or on the ABC Listen app. Bye for now. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.